here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Books with Hooks. If you were at our one night only event, which for you guys, you know, listening to this would have been weeks ago, for Cece and I, that was last night. So if Cece and I sound a little tired, if our voices are a little craggly, that is why we had such a fun, fun time at our one night only webinar event. And now we have a we have a one night only hangover today, but we're so thrilled. We have an author with us on the show, an aspiring author. We haven't done this in a while, and I'm so excited. This is some of my favorite episodes to record because Cece and I always say, hey, if the author was here, we would ask them blank. And now we have an author with us today and we are so glad that Jessica Stone is with us. Welcome Jessica. 
Thank you, guys. I feel like I got invited to sit with the cool kids at lunch. So this is a blast. We're so thrilled to have you. So let's hop right to it. Today, we're going to have you read your query letter to us. I can do that. All right, here we go. Bianca, Carly, and Cece. It's hard to overestimate what the podcast has done for my writing, and just as importantly, for me as a writer. From Bianca's early review of my opening pages, to my weekend in the fold of the inaugural retreat, to the gift that is my Teeth Not Y'all curated writers group, you have been invaluable in guiding me forward on this path to authorship. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Dear Carly, since hearing you first proclaim your love of a good going home trope, I've been eager to share a perfectly nice place to be from, my 77,000 word upmarket women's fiction novel. It's a quarter life coming of age story, the push of growing up against the pull of going home, that touches on the intricacies of female friendship and the inestimable bond between a girl and her dad. It will resonate with readers who love the tone and telling of Emily Henry's Happy Place and the style and substance of Always the Last to Know by Kristen Higgins. For the past decade, Kelsey Turley has been determined to make good on the dreams her beloved father gave up in order to raise her on his own. Now, with a big promotion on the line at work and a where-is-this-going relationship at home, Kelsey is forced to admit, none of it is her dream. In one fell swoop on one melodramatic night, she blows it all up, telling off both her boss and her boyfriend. Still reeling, Kelsey learns her father's been in a car accident. She flees New York for the safe haven of Ohio, where she secretly yearns to settle back into the life she knew best with the people she loves most. But settling in proves harder than Kelsey anticipated. Her father is on the mend, but distracted. Her friends have their own messy lives to worry about. Lila and Andy are on again, maybe, kind of. And Karis is a frazzled single mom without time to text back. As Kelsey considers coming home for good, she's struck by the unsettling feeling that home has moved on without her. When a scandalous secret between two of her people is exposed, Kelsey must decide whether to stay and forgive a betrayal or to move on herself and risk the relationships that have always defined her. Ultimately, Kelsey will learn to define her own dreams instead of following someone else's. After chasing my own New York dreams, I'm happily ensconced back in the great Midwest. When I'm not dazzling clients with nonsensical buzzwords as the editorial director for a global marketing team, I'm writing stories about relationships. My most recent piece was chosen as a finalist in the Writer Magazine's Short Story Contest. I would love the opportunity to share the rest of Kelsey's story with you. May I please send you the full manuscript? Thank you, Jessica. I'm going to throw it over to Cece to tell us what she thought of the query letter. And before I do that, Jessica, do you have the word count handy? If not, we can grab that as well. I do. If I cheat and I take out the part at the beginning there to you guys, I am at 402. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jessica. All right, I'll throw it over to Cece. Jessica, that was not cheating at all. That is totally fair because that was a paragraph for us, right? So I think that is absolutely fair. Okay, well, this is very well written, very polished. I can tell that you like spent time really making sure that this was good. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your kind words. Okay, plot paragraph because if you listen to the podcast, you know that's my obsession. When I read Determined to Make Good on the Dreams Her Beloved Father Gave Up, I was like, ooh, interesting. Like that's a good character setup situation. Like the daughter who is living the dreams that the father couldn't, or it could be a different parent, right? Like, But that's that's such a very interesting setup. And I wanted to know what the dream was. It's not a problem that I don't, but I guess I was just like, wait, what is it? You know, like what like what is the dream? Especially because in a father-daughter dynamic, it's not always necessarily super possible. Um, just because of gender roles in our society. So I was really curious about that. When we got to, Kelsey is forced to admit that none of it is her dream. I I felt like we were being told something that hadn't been earned. And I'm not saying it hasn't been earned in the story, just in the query letter. Because before that we get, like she has a big promotion on the line at work. That's exciting. That's a whole bunch of possibility that's lined up for her. 
And yeah, where is it going relationship? But it's not a relationship that like bombed or anything. So I'm wondering what forces her to admit it. Like it feels like it's all hinging on one day she kind of snapped, but all in her head without external pressures based on the query letter. And that made me go, I'm not sure that's the most compelling setup because it just requires the interiority to do so much work. Like you usually want the external plot points to to also help push someone over the edge. So that was another question I had. I thought that the the line, maybe kind of with Lila and Andy, like I get what you were going for, but I had to reread it because I was like, are they on again, off again? No, wait, hold on, read that again, Cece. And just because of the volume of query letters agents get, I would recommend striking that. It's a very small thing. And maybe it was just me. And maybe it's also that my brain is tired. But in fairness, most agents' brains are tired. When a scandalous secret between two of her people, is it intentional that we don't know who the people are? Because we don't know who the secret is. That I get. But like, not even the people. Like, do we get a hint? I guess I'm wondering, is there enough plot aside her interiority? Like, that would be my big, my big note for you. Like, it's a beautiful theme, the learning how to define her own dreams. It's a thing that can really carry a novel in terms of a character arc. Like someone can start the novel in one place and then end the novel in a totally different place. And that is what you want in terms of your protagonist's change. But it did make me wonder, like, I don't think I have enough on the external plot to accompany her interiority. So they will chat about more on the pages too. And I do want to say, I really like that you included the the social media handles. Before we go to you, I'm going to ask Carly what she thought, and then we can just discuss all thoughts, especially because if Carly and I disagree on something, that's interesting too. Thank you so much, Cece. Okay. Well, first of all, yes, that is such a lovely note to us. We're, we're so honored to play such a pivotal role in people's lives. Um, and we're always just so grateful to hear that. So thank you. Okay. So yes, I do love a good going home trope. That is very accurate. And I really like the title, A Perfectly Nice Place to Be From. It's just like, it's a throwaway line, but it's like something we've heard of, but it's not overdone. Like it, to me, it just, it covers a lot of those balances. So sometimes I, you know, you'll hear me say in the podcast, I'm like, that sounds like non fiction. This doesn't sound like nonfiction because it's like has a bit of a wink to it, you know? So, so I really, I really liked that. So I just want to get into some like word play here. So you say touches on to me, that is weak, you know, in terms of just like something touching on something. I'm like, do we want it to touch on or do we want to use a, like something more actionable, something a bit more confident? So I would, I would just reevaluate like that type of word. And then at the end of that line, I would probably add the dramatic moment because we have like touches on again, like, I think that's like just weak in terms of like verb, the female friendship an estimable bond between a girl and her dad. Love that. But then it's like, and then boom, do you know what I mean? Like drop that bomb. And then we can move into our awesome comps, you know, happy place, always the last to know. I've read both of those books and completely accurate in terms of that going home trope. Like always the last to know was an incredible book for that in terms of like women's fiction coming home and having real stakes attached to that and lots of bombs dropped in different areas. So I I love that comp. I love that book. And so then moving on here, I think some of the issues I had are kind of similar to Cece in terms of again, specificity, right? So we have our our big promotion, work, relationship at home, one melodramatic night. Like to me, these are just things where there's such an opportunity to be like, what is the big promotion to go from, we learn later, it's assistant, right? To like more of an acting role or work. Like what is the job? Do you know what I mean? It's like these little opportunities to just be like one more word specific. And obviously sometimes this beefs up word count, which is never our goal. And it could be that you had that in and you took that out because you're like, I don't want too many words. Right. But it's like these little bits of specificity 
that really create an atmosphere around the book. Because at this point, I don't, I'm trying to put myself in her shoes and I can't because I don't know what her job is. I don't know where she works. I don't know if she's going from director to CEO or assistant. Do you know what I mean? To, to an acting role. So all of these things play into our mind as we like build this world in our head, which I think is important. So next we have, so all this stuff happens, then still reeling, learns her father's been in a car accident. So to me, it makes more sense in my brain. And if this isn't applicable to your book, then obviously ignore what I'm saying. But to me, it would make more sense for learn that her father's been in the car accident. Then she blows it all up. Do you know what I'm saying? Because then it's not like, oh, it's just a coincidence. All of these things are happening and all this drama rain is pouring down on her. It's like learns her father's been in a car accident, blows it all up. And so we understand more as a reader, like there is a reason why she blew it up. Not like, oh, all of these things just happen to happen on one night. Do you know what I mean? Again, if this isn't, this this doesn't make sense with a story, I will leave that with you. But in my brain, like that's what I'm thinking about logic and understanding and character motivation just from a query letter level. So those are some of the things I think about. I would probably cut the line about like secretly yearns to settle back into the life she knew best with people she loved the most. Just because it's a little boring, right? And so boring is comfortable, but we don't want our character to be comfortable, right? We're trying to get into what is uncomfortable of the situation. So if we can even just like shrink that line, that will save you a few words there or just figure out a way to just make sure that we're not thinking about comfort. We're thinking about how is this character uncomfortable? So like, how are we going to subvert that? Especially with the going home trope. We just don't want that to be comfort. We're not going home for comfort. We're going home to be uncomfortable, which she gets later on. She understands that. But again, we don't want to mince words here. So really like when we're getting into, you know, settling in as harder than she anticipated. Fathers on the men, but distracted. Friends have their own stuff. To me, and again, this is what we have to figure out how to incorporate a bit higher up, is the scandalous betrayal between two of her people. Like, boom, right? And you're dropping this at the end after we talk about comfort, after we have no idea what job she does, right? And so like when we're thinking about what is the most important part of this query letter, that is the type of thing that we can add up into the hookup at the top so that we understand, hey, drama is to come. This isn't a comfortable going home story. This is an incredibly uncomfortable going home story. And that is what makes going home stories unique. So yeah, those are kind of my main notes on that. Jessica, we're handing it over to you now. You can chat with us about our notes. You can ask us questions. We'll do the query letter first, and then we'll move on to the pages. All right. Well, thank you both so very much, whether this stays on or not. I have to tell you that I I tweaked my query letter because, of course, just like everybody, once you send it, then all of a sudden you're like, wait, 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 no, I want to change things. So when Bianca said, you're going to be on the podcast, I said, oh, great. Can I send them an updated query letter? And she said, no. So she sticks to her rules, which is- We are firm. We are firm on that rule. you guys addressing a couple of the things that I think had had stood out to me, but I think a few of the the points that you brought up are both relatively simple in in my ability to, nope, none of that, none of that, none of that. I think that the notes that you guys gave me make perfect sense and will be relatively easy to include. So going kind of straight to this scandalous secret, because Cece brought that up first. So the people that are involved in it would be a bit of a spoiler. So I would love to hear you guys kind of help me talk through, you know, where I think as authors working on this query, it's 
it's really tough to get that specificity. It's funny, you know, I listen to you guys every week and I hear you giving the, the same pieces of advice. And yet somehow when you go to apply it, it's super challenging to kind of figure out, okay, you know, I'm already at 400 words. I'm already on the long end of the word count. So how to weave in some of that specificity in that instance without dropping a spoiler and in other instances without just, you know, rambling on for, for pages at a time. So I'm curious, how, if you guys have any thoughts on how to address that notion of a scandalous secret, when I, when I really, if I think if I gave the details of the who away, it would also give away the kind of the what. So what I think was really interesting, and this comes back to the word choice, and I really like, the reason I didn't flag this bit is because I really like this part, the between two of her people. You know, when you call somebody like my person, it's like that Grey's Anatomy thing where it's like, you're my person. And so when you said between two of her people. I understood that this was two, two people who are very close to her. You could say two of her favorite people, even just to be like, so we understand the closeness, like if, if we just need to hammer that home with like one more word. And I think like Cece's you know, approach, this was slightly different than mine in terms of what stood out to her. But to me, I'm like, it made sense when you said two of her people. That to me was fine. I think what Cece was focused on was the scandalous secret itself. Like, is there anything? So Cece, maybe you could speak to what, how you maybe think we could beef up the scandalous part. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my questions was if it was intentional, that we don't know who it was, and it is. So by no means am I suggesting you should reveal that because if it's a spoiler, we don't want to know spoilers. Up until the climax though, because if this is a spoiler, this is the climax. Up until the climax, we're going to need more juicy external pressure being applied on the protagonist in order for this to fit the upmarket pacey expectations. And to our earlier point, we're not getting that. We're getting her forced to admit. I don't know what forces her to admit. The accident happens later, so there isn't that dominoes tipping over effect. So maybe the issue then is that, you know, keep the the non-specificity in the secret because again, it's a spoiler but maybe work on on the juicy external pressure before. That might be one way to do it. You're probably going to tweak this a few times until you figure out how to do it. If It's not like a, oh, here's what you do situation nine times out of 10. Does that make sense, Jessica? Do you have any questions about the query letter or should we move on to your pages? That makes a ton of sense. And I really, really appreciate you guys giving me that level of, of depth in your feedback. So thank you so much. Yeah, I think we covered, I had a couple of notes to myself to, to ask you guys just kind of, bridging that gap between being concise and, 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 you know, not giving anything away and being vague. So I, I feel like we've, we've covered that. So yeah, if you guys feel ready to move on to pages. Okay. Will you please give our listeners an overview of what happens in your opening pages? Certainly. So in those first five pages, we meet our protagonist, Kelsey, on a boat in lower Manhattan. She's greeting her boss, and we very quickly learn that it's a big night, an important event that's taking place, and that if it goes well, Kelsey is expecting a promotion to come from it. We also learn very quickly that she, her boss is a lot. <laughs> she's very demanding, and she's very dramatic, and we get a glimpse at how much effort Kelsey has to kind of put into just keeping her calm. You know, we, we realize this is a, a normal pattern between the two of them and in, in their interactions. On the outside, Kelsey's very composed, she's very capable. Even as Violet, her boss, is getting worked up about everything from, you know, the, the, the guests to the quiche. And then through interiority, we get a closer glimpse at, at how Kelsey's actually feeling about the evening, that instead of being excited and instead of anticipating this prospect of a promotion, she's She's got this kind of growing sense of anxiety, even dread. At one point, she compares herself to, to a duck, you know, that notion of 
you look at her on the surface and she's she's gliding very smoothly but then you you take a peek underneath and she's she's sort of paddling like crazy just to, to keep going so the five pages ends with kelsey realizing that a coworker of hers is unexpectedly on the boat as well which kind of sets off her spidey senses that something is amiss all right and cc can you tell us what you thought of the pages amazing thank you for that really great summary jessica okay so i want to say that i loved the duck analogy like that was so good. I highlighted it and I was like, I love this metaphor. Also, I love that we're seeing the discrepancy between her exterior self and her interiority. When writing interiority, you want to give people either depth or detail or deception even, right? Like because it's never the same. Like no one's ever fully themselves, even if you're around people that you love and trust. And so that was really interesting. And I really, really liked that. You'll get my written notes, so you'll see that there's a lot here that's working. So from her first day on the job, Kelsey had wondered what her last straw would be. And as her boss came barreling down the gangplank, she knew it would be quiche, right? So Violet, her boss, who is, by the way, a lot, yes, says, we have a serious emergency, a catastrophe. And then she thinks to herself, the protagonist, there is no such thing as a quiche catastrophe. But Violet hasn't said the word quiche at all. So did, was this said in dialogue before? You know, because it's almost like she's guessing that she means quiche. And we don't even get like that she was, I don't know, like pointing to the quiche. She's holding the quiche, sure. But like the word quiche is only present in Kelsey's interiority. So it's not present in the dialogue. So if Violet had said a quiche catastrophe, then it would make sense for Kelsey to think like there's no such thing. So that's a small thing, but it, it tripped me up, especially because it was on the first page. And again, maybe there's an explanation. You'll tell me in a second once we go to you. I also have to say, and again, this is something that you can clarify. Is this publishing? Like, is this book publishing? Is that is that the world that we're in, right? Because there is a line that says that she wanted to make her big break into publishing when she'd come to New York. And then you have mentions of authors. You have mentions of like associate agents. If this is publishing, it reads like... It reads like someone took some something in the finance world, like a hedge fund, and then made it into publishing. Like with the boats and and the dynamics of wanting to poach someone for the book to film because then like it kind of guarantees their author's access. Publishing is slower. Like it's it's just not that fast paced. It's just not like it just didn't read like publishing to me at all. So that's something like it just did not read as authentic to me. And here's my big note. I am missing something. I'm sure that it's me missing something because we have her saying, Instead, she was here, stuck assisting someone else's career. Like, help me understand. Above, she said she hoped tonight would end in her being promoted. Tonight hasn't even started yet. Like, she should still, her interiority should still be on, I'm going to do a really good job because that promotion is right there. Like, it's mine. It's mine for the taking. But instead, she keeps mentioning, and and by the way, do a a control search for how, how many times you use the word instead, which I think is intentional. I think you're going for an echo. But I don't get why now. Like, that is my big note to you. Why now? The night hasn't begun yet. Yeah, Violet's being difficult, but Violet is clearly always difficult, you know? If something had happened, for example, with with Marisol, like Marisol, because she's surprised that Marisol is there. Like, if Marisol being there could mean that the promotion isn't hers, I'm not sure how you would work that into a story, but then I would get it because it's a disruption. Like, a disruption would lead to her losing it. But Nothing has been disrupted. The night is going like she expected it. Her boss is being difficult, you know, 
I, I, the, the paragraph, I even highlighted it in the last um, page. Certain the promotion she'd been gunning for was finally within her reach. Kelsey expected tonight to be a rush of, a, of a adrenaline and temptation, but she was anxious instead. Like I get the anxious feeling, but it feels like her anxiety has no reason. It's all unexplained anxiety. And I know from firsthand experience that a lot of anxiety is illogical. Like it's not something you can explain. But I don't think for a story it makes sense, right? Like even though it is realistic that people feel anxiety for no no rational reason, in a story you kind of want that sense of, okay, it makes sense that this would happen now so the reader can get invested in that story. Curly, do we want to go to your notes and then we can pass it along to Jessica? Okay, so I really liked the first line. From the first day on the job, Kelsey had wondered what the last straw would be. Like to me, it's a sense of foreboding. It's a sense of interiority. We can tell like something is going to go down. Perfect, right? That's what we need in a first line. I think that was great. My next note is on the swearing. I have no problem with swearing. I usually preface every webinar I ever do with there will be swearing. Women's fiction readers generally feel strongly about swearing. Some are fine with it. If you go to the Goodreads of a lot of novels, especially in this type of category, you will always see an upvoted note on Goodreads about swearing. So it is just a, you are taking a risk note, really. You know, it's like you decide what to do with that information. Is it risky? Potentially. But again, I flag that just so, just so that you are aware of it. Okay, now I want to talk about the relationship between uh, these two women, Kelsey and Violet. I'm a bit concerned it comes off as like a bit of woman on woman crime in terms of like the way that she is perceiving her boss. And it's not to say that like everybody has to hold hands, like of course, and of course we need like tension in our novels. But the way that it's coming off as judgmental really made me unlike Kelsey. Because even if like, even if you don't like somebody, the way that she's interioritizing this, I don't know if that's a word, she is presenting her as a caricature to the reader, right? So this is why it's like there's something different between real life and fiction, right? And so we're trying to like walk this balance between the two of them and, and kind of split the difference here. I, it just came off as like a little bit of woman on woman crime to me. And so again, I just flagged that just so you kind of are aware of maybe how that's coming off to the reader. Okay, by the end of page one, we still don't know what her job is. At the bottom, it says how scary good Violet was at her job, right? So we know there is a job. Obviously, we know this is about work, but we do not get the sense of still what what is happening here. And then by page two, I feel like this moment in real life would be like 15 seconds. And yet we're still on page two in this moment, which again, like somebody walking up the you know the steps they have the platter in their hand they're holding onto the railing they say two bits of dialogue like in real life that's 15 seconds and yet we're still on we're on page two so it feels really slow to me even though there's things happening and there's movement it's coming off slow to me I did have a note about the publishing bit and so I mean I watched younger is that a caricature of publishing absolutely does that represent publishing not at all do I still love it of course but like It just depends on how closely we are trying to align this with the reality of our business versus the romanticization of our business, right? And so these are two different things. I know that there is a literary agency that does rent out a boat every year and take editors on it. And that is a real thing that exists. But are they doing it in five inch heels, you know, again, in this way that we're perceiving Violet? No. And so again, we just have to kind of create the sense of believability. And this is one of the reasons why I have been, have been quoted and I'm on the internet saying, I don't love books about publishing because your first gatekeeper 
is an agent. Your second gatekeeper is an editor. And you know what I mean? And so if you're going to choose anything at all, you're choosing the thing that like we live and breathe <laughs> and love and hate, you know, all these complicated relationships with our jobs, right? But like, you know, and so that's your first gatekeeper. And so I just worry that authors don't set themselves up for the most amount of success. It's not to say it can't be done because then I say this and then everybody's going to tweet at me or X or whatever we call it now. They're going to threads at me, you know, their feelings about what I'm saying. But like, I don't know. I, I just, again, I want the most success for everybody. And I always feel like it's just a hurdle that, again, that you place yourself in. So yeah. And then other than that, again, like the economics of this agency. So they're like, how much money does this agency have? They're starting a new agency. They have enough money to poach somebody from a, a UTA or CAA job that they're making like 300 grand from. And then they're paying an assistant and then this person's paying herself a salary and she has five inch heels. Like I don't understand the economics of this agency. So again, like these are just the things that come up to me, which of course, you know, just working in the business, this is what matters to me and what I'm going to pick at. So those are the things that stood out. But other than that, like, I think, I think you're onto something in the coming home trope, right? Like, as I said, I love that trope. It's just, how do we get home? Right. And, and that's what we're always moving towards is how can we get home as fast as possible is usually the goal in a coming home novel. Jessica, over to you now. So you can ask us questions and pick our brain. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think this is one of those instances where you read something yourself 7,000 times and then somebody says, you know, but she hasn't said quiche yet. And you're like, oh, okay, well, great. Good thing I only, I only read that, you know, if, if I'd read it that 7,000 and once time, I would have, I would have got that. I'm quite sure that the notion of to, to tack on to what Carly was saying there, the notion of this, of this being publishing I, I started this story so long before I was in this world and, and listening to you guys. I'm certainly not married. It's it's more that the job is on the line than what it is. So I think I can definitely spend a bit more time sitting with Kelsey and kind of figuring out what might her, her job be. I think those are easy tweaks. There's nothing in the remainder of the story necessarily that, that makes it need to be that world. So I, I do think it might benefit me to to just kind of switch up. I, I, I think I, I like the setup. I like where things are going and how she's gotten kind of to this point, but I don't think it needs to be publishing per se. So recognizing, again, like, like you said, that the first, the first people to see this will be people who know that, that world so intimately. I'm probably doing myself a disservice because I don't. So I think I can make a change there that would eliminate that part of the problem, but still keep us moving forward. I actually did a find and replace for the word instead. I'm not even going to tell you how many were there. So <laughs> that was something that apparently I carried through the entire thing that and I had I had a few I had a few words that, that had to come back down. The cursing, it's one of those I on one hand, I feel like you know what, I'm going to dig my heels in. I think it's very true to, to her and how she thinks and how she speaks. And it's something that goes throughout. I, I will also say that Bianca had the chance to read an, an earlier version of this when I won a contest through her. And originally, that third line that has the cuss word in it was my first line. And even Bianca was like, ah, I got it. I got it. We got it. <laughs> we got to tear back a little bit. So I bumped it down to the third line. That was my goal for once. So I think, I think it's definitely something I know it's a risk that I'm taking. And I'll be curious to hear as it keeps going if, if we're really genuinely concerned that, okay, this is going to be a roadblock that doesn't need to be there, then I'll, I'll figure out how to represent her and, and kind of her world and her friends and how they speak to each other in that, in that way. But I, I do, I do acknowledge in here that that's something that's a, a sticking point for, for a lot of folks. So 
I have given that thought thanks to you guys addressing it in, in previous conversations. Absolutely. I think I built up the caricature really of, of Violet to contrast Kelsey. You know, I really, I like the kind of the dichotomy of these, of these two different women, but hearing you talk, I think what I can probably do a better job of, I mean, they've, they've worked together. We, we learn a little bit later. They've worked together for almost six years now. So it's, it's a long standing relationship. So I, I definitely think in these opening pages, maybe I can work a bit harder to to show the relationship side of it as well so that it doesn't have that that feeling of girl on girl crime. <laughs> yeah. And so like I was just thinking as you were talking there, like I think what you can do to show the contrast is more just like name the brand of shoes, right? You could name her, like both of their brands, right? It's like Kelsey's wearing Birkenstock or whatever the thing, right? Like obviously not this night, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like name the brands almost or just say like through, like, instead of just picking on Violet, I think you have to show the contrast of like, for example, maybe Violet's skirt was shorter, Kelsey's skirt was longer or whatever, you know what I mean? Like through showing, showing through things that are descriptors that, that improve characterization, as opposed to just, again, like nitpicking on her. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great suggestion. So I think, I think kind of rethinking her job, bumping that up so that that's something where we've got a clearer picture of, of who all kind of all of the players are. It's definitely a, a slow build. This My first chapter, I want to say, is is 11 or 12 pages, I think, altogether. So I'm curious your thoughts on, since you mentioned you felt like, you know, the 15 seconds is taking, you know, several several pages. Is that something, do I just kind of need to look at those opening pages and figure out, okay, how do I make this 15 second conversation take place shorter and just really start to pare down? Or how how else do you suggest I might make that pacing feel a little more appropriate? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things, right? Like, I think you don't want to be like comedic about it. It's like, oh, no, someone went overboard on the boat or like whatever the thing is, right? Like, I don't know if that's the thing. But you know what I'm trying to say? What is the event that's happening on the boat? So to me, we start meeting other people, right? So we start getting introduced to Byron. We get introduced to Marisol. How long are these characters sticking around? Do we need both of them? Could we combine the Marisol and the Byron? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, how do we just condense? Because the more attention you give to this world, the more we think it's important. And what is important here? Is it more Kelsey's reaction, observations, the contrast you're trying to create between these two worlds, Kelsey's world and who she thinks she is and who she wants to be versus this fancy yacht world? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, that's what's important. And so I think you really have to think about the goal of this scene. And that's the hardest thing about opening pages and first chapters, right? It's like, you wrote this thing, you go back and tweak it a million times. And the final question you always need to ask yourself is, did my intentions come through? Is the goal that I set for this chapter remains on the page after all the tweaking and all the redlining? And so I would really just come back to what was the initial goal that I set for this chapter and whether you follow Saves the Cat or other methods, right? Like go back, whether you need to storyboard it, always have to go back to these first pages, right? Because of the amount of redlining that happens and the quiches that get cut and things like that, right? So I just come back to that goal and just really try to focus on that. Amazing, Carly. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. We so appreciate you doing this with us. It's so great to be able to ask questions. This has been so, so amazing. Thank you very much. Well, and thank you both. I feel honored to get to represent all of the authors who wish they had the chance to, to sit and to pick your brain. So I will absolutely take your notes to heart. And I am so grateful for the chance. 
Well, these are my favorite types of episodes to do. I don't know. I just, I love the kind of dialogue and rapport that we're able to create through working through this and hearing our tone. And I know agents come across as these people that are like, we're just on email writing these rejections, right? But it's like, I don't know. I love bringing this feedback to life for, for you, Jessica, and for everyone listening. So thank you. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. 
Hi, everyone. It is Carly here today with your author interview. And I'm very excited. We we were mutually starstruck by each other because we are both podcast people. So I'm very excited to introduce you guys to Becca Freeman. Becca Freeman is the co-host of the popular books and lifestyle podcast, Bad on Paper, which you guys should all be listening to, and the co-creator of Rom-Com Pods. She is a graduate of Boston College, and Becca currently lives in Brooklyn, where she enthusiastically celebrates Christmas every year. Welcome to our show, Becca. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, so it feels extra exciting to be a guest. Yeah, so it's been great because we've like damned over over the past little while, just like getting to know each other as fellow book pod people. But you're such a veteran. You've been doing this way longer than I have. So I'm just so glad to kind of learn from you and your expertise and celebrate your new book. And could you please tell our listeners all about the book that you are currently starting to get ready to share with the world? Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote a book called The Christmas Orphans Club. It is my debut novel, and it comes out September 26th. And the book is told in alternating now and then timelines. It's about a group of four friends who are each alone on Christmas for a different reason. And they've built a decade-long tradition of spending the holidays together, having these fun, wild adventures all around New York City. And in the past, we kind of get to see the greatest hits of their past Christmases. And then in the present, they're all 30. And one of them announces that he is imminently moving to LA. And the group is trying to plan their best Christmas ever while trying to reckon with what they mean to each other and growing up without growing apart. Oh, I loved it. So I actually, I always try to make a point of finishing the book as close to the interview as possible. So it's fresh in my mind because I read so much. So I finished it last night and I was crying. Like I loved really? it so much. Yes. What a compliment. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I always make a note of when I cry too, because I like to remind myself of when I cry and what makes me cry. Yeah, and I was just so moved at the end. I was like, oh my God, there's so much that I love about it. Like, obviously I'm reading it in summer. It is a Christmas, I'm using air quotes here, like a Christmas-ish story. But yeah, I feel like you can read it anytime. And so, yeah, I would highly encourage everybody to, you know, hit that pre-order button and make sure that everybody has it as soon as it comes out, because it'll be a good, like cozy fall read for everybody as they as they get ready for for Christmas. And yeah, I, I feel like it had a lot of, I mean, this is a high compliment. I feel like it has a lot of red, white, and royal blue energy and a lot of Emily oh. energy. Because oh my of God. Like, you know, I don't know. I really, I feel like you have that snap, crackle, pop dialogue that Emily does really well. And then you have our, you know, gay relationship kind of combo of like, you know, the, the Brit and the American. So I think there's just so much to love. Oh my gosh. I didn't pay Carly to say that just so you know, <laughs> but I would have. I'm not cheap either. <laughs> yes. All right. So I wanted to obviously talk about the book today. And one of the things we do on our podcast is we we talk about the first five pages as well a lot. So I kind of wanted to just point out all of the things that you're doing wonderful. And, you know, we can break down some of the ways that you do it well, because I think a lot of times our listeners are always so interested in hearing about how authors, you know, find their success and are successful. But breaking down the like, how did you do it part. So I'm going to ask a lot of like crafty questions about how you accomplish everything that you accomplish. And so in the first five pages, I give you like all these check marks for subverting expectations. You know, I think we don't go into a book to just be, you know, following along in somebody's life. It's like, we want to just be 
smashed into a world and that world to be upended at the same time. So we're kind of learning about the world. And I think you do, you do such a, such a lovely job. And so it starts out, we know it's a Christmas book, right? So it starts out, it was the night before Christmas and all through Manhattan, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And then we do a, like a scratch that <laughs> Manhattan at six o'clock on Christmas Eve is a complete and utter shit show. So right from the beginning, we're like thrown into this world of, we think we know what it's about. And then obviously, you know, wildness is, is going to to ensue and it's really funny as well so I feel like humor is very hard to pull off so I have a lot of questions for you about humor and like how we dial that up and dial that down and another thing I think you do really well in these first five pages is so there's this idea you know and this obviously comes through in your book as well where there's a secret that we're keeping from the reader and the secret here revolves around their this friendship of these two friends, which we kind of know from the beginning there, they had a little friendship breakup at some point. And so in your book, they right from the beginning, we know that there is a friendship breakup at some point, but you keep it from the reader for a long time. So I'm very curious about my first question for you is, how did you know when it was the right moment to reveal the secret versus how, like how much you wanted to keep back from the reader and how much did you kind of play with like dialing that up and dialing it down or having beta readers comment or editor comment, that kind of thing? So first of all, I'm so complimented by the fact that you enjoyed the first five pages. I was nervous coming here because I do have a prologue, which I know that you were usually really critical of. <laughs> and it's funny because I didn't initially have a prologue and I, I think it felt really natural to me to start at the very beginning when the two POV characters meet. But that happens when they're 19, they're in college, it's in the past. And when I sent the book to my agent, she was like, I think this needs a prologue because otherwise the first chapter reads a little bit as YA. And it's the only chapter that we get while they're in college. So it doesn't necessarily match the tone of even the past chapters that are further into the book when they're in their 20s. So... She was the one who suggested a prologue, and I'd heard from you so many times, like, no prologues. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this allowed? And so I actually wrote the prologue towards the end after I'd written the whole book. So I already knew what was going to happen. I already knew what hints to drop because I wasn't writing it when I was starting the book. Totally. And in terms of the timing, you know, I I pantsed this book, which I don't know that I recommend, but I did it. And I went into it knowing kind of the basics of this friend group, I knew that around the mid, what I thought was going to be the midpoint, it actually happens probably closer to 60% that there was going to be this big fight. And I knew what it was over. I knew what happened. And so I was kind of just writing my way to it. And it naturally happened around the 60% mark. But because the friendship story, and this is the A story, instead of the romance being an A story, I feel like I needed to build towards some sort of like dramatic moment where the relationship shifted and everything turned on its head, which obviously, because it's a friendship between straight women and a gay man, it wasn't sex, it wasn't having feelings for each other. It was like, it had to be something really dramatic. And I think the obvious thing was like a huge fight. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to go back to the prologue thing, because I feel like Yes, I do harp on prologues all the time, but there are always exceptions to the rule and everybody thinks they're the exception. And I feel like, Becky, you because I think you also came back to this and wrote it later, it all makes sense. I, my concern with prologues is always when a writer is writing themselves into the story. Do you know what I mean? And they're using yep. that as that opportunity to be like, I'm going to get myself there by, you know, wading a little bit into the story or just kind of making big leaps. But I know I feel like yours was a very like cinematic approach. It was like, let's like set the scene. And I agree with the adult, um, the adult POV making that very clear. I think that that all makes sense. 
And I tried to keep it quick. I think it's only four or five pages. I'm not sure how how long it is in the book, but in in Word, it's you know four pages. It works for me. All right. So then the so the next chapter you said. So we start historically, right, with them in college. And I was actually in Boston last week, and it, it, this part was in Boston College. I was like, oh, it's all coming back to me. I was meant to read it right now. And so they are in college. And so another thing we always talk about on the podcast is this idea of like what is historical and what is not historical. And everybody gets mad at me when I say really pretty much 10 years, you know, 15 years, 20 years, that is historical because there is context we have to give for that time and place that isn't contemporary. And again, everyone will get mad at me again. But in your book, I think it's 2008 is the year, and you kind of drop these notes of how are we going to explain that it's 2008. And so you use like some music, it's OAR and Postal Service and like the salt stained Ugg boots. I was like, that was very of the moment in 2008 for, <laughs> for college age kids. And so how did you decide like how much sprinkling of that historical context to give? Did you Did you play around with that balance? Oh my God, I had to be pulled back. There was definitely <laughs> more in, in previous drafts. That part was so fun for me. I I feel like, you know, those were my college years as well. I went to Boston College. There was so much I wanted to sprinkle in that were little Easter eggs that had nothing to do with the plot and were just added color. So I feel like I went too far and then had to be pulled back by my editor when we were cutting during developmental edits. But I think that's fine. It's like, it's better to have more than less and pull back than to try to figure out what those details are, at least for me. Yeah, yeah. It was very authentic to me. I graduated in 09. So I was like, this felt very uh, of the moment to me. So I, it spoke to me for sure. And now I want to jump back to, we were talking about kind of the structure. So you said it is a friendship story. There are kind of like the romance and there's like, you know, you kind of described it as A plots and B plots. Like, so to me, as I was reading it and obviously knowing we're going to have this conversation, I was really thinking about, and, I, and on Instagram this week in your stories, you were kind of saying it's being shelved as rom-com, but like, is it rom-com? It's a friendship story. And I think this is a very interesting conversation because there are the two main POVs. There's the four friends. There's also like two central romance plots. So there is a lot of people kind of coming and going through the story. It's a lot to keep straight, but you do it really like in a very tidy way. I think I think it's done really well. So talk to me about you know, that balance of trying to figure out is the friendship story enough to like be an A plot? Or did you ever think like maybe the maybe the love story has to be the A plot? Or, or when was it always an A plot friendship story for you? It always was. It it always was. I wanted to write a Christmas book that didn't feel like a standard Hallmark movie, which are very marriage minded and about you know, the woman needs to leave the city to find this handsome, rugged gentleman and you know, they need to be engaged by the end of the movie. And I really wanted something that wasn't that. And I I love books that center friendship. And I feel like there are so few of them. Like we, we spill so much ink on romances. And I love romances. It's my favorite genre. But I feel like there's so many fewer books that center friendship. Like I can think of Commencement by J. Courtney Sullivan as a favorite or The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer. But even that, like the friends become romantic. So it kind of gets muddled. And so I I knew that I wanted the friendship story to be the A story. And actually, through the edit process, there was always the romance between Theo and Finn. But the romance between Hannah and David actually got amped up through the editing process because it felt like because she was spending so much time with her friends, like he was a little absent. So we really had to work to bring him into the story more. 
but I, I always knew that I wanted it to be friendship first. And I'm, I am so nervous about it coming out because it, it is shelved as romance. There's no, what is it called? Like a bisac code. There's like certain genres that exist that you can categorize a book as, and there isn't one for stories about lifelong friendships. And, and so, you know, they're putting it as a rom-com, which makes sense, but I, I have this great fear that readers who are just picking it up off of a shelf and don't know me or don't have any context will be expecting a lot more romance. So I've been really delighted so far that people are really, really vibing with the fact that it's friendship centered instead of romance centered. But I've heard from other authors who've been shelved as romance that, you know, they feel like it was a kiss of death for them if it didn't quite deliver on the romance and especially like the steamy scenes that maybe readers are expecting, which this book doesn't have. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. So I get like told by editors all the time that they're looking for friendship stories. Everybody's like, I want friendship stories. And then when I pitch them friendship stories, sometimes they're like, not that friendship story, you know? So I think it's like friendship stories is that like very particular type of thing. And I think also there is that, I, I do think there is that commercial fiction boxing in that we have to do where things have to fit in these categories. And a lot of reader expectation is kind of built into that, whether it's a chicken and egg, right? It's like, whether it's the reader that has started that or the publishers that have started that, there is that expectation that there is a romantic element in a lot of commercial fiction. And so I really, and so this is what I was thinking about, again, knowing we were talking and I was reading is that I felt very emotionally satisfied in terms of the romance and how like everything was resolved and that emotional roller coaster. And then with the friendship roller coaster as well, I feel like you were able to elevate by hitting on all those notes. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, I, I feel like you, people will be really satisfied by all three kind of plots and, and, and dramas in a way that I think you did it really, really well. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I feel like in my life, I have these friendships that I've, I'm very close with many of my college friends. and I've known them at this point more than half of my life. And, you know, we've changed so much as people and it's just something I'm so interested in exploring these like long-term friendships and how people change and how the friendships change. And also like, I feel like there's this time in your twenties where your friendships are your central relationships. Like it's like the friends TV show where all you do is hang out with each other. And even though there's boyfriends and girlfriends, the friendship is the center. And then you get Mm -hmm. into your thirties and I feel like people start getting married, having kids and like all of that changes. And so you know, I really wanted to explore people going through that transition in their lives where they were going from friendship is the most important thing to I have other pressures pulling on me, whether it's like career and I need to move somewhere else or getting engaged or things like that. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think you hit on that really wonderful sweet spot of that's like the growing up. It's like that second coming of age. Right. And I think I think this book hits on that sweet spot really, really well. Okay, I want to talk about the Internet because I always I always want to ask writers who write contemporary fiction about this because a lot of writers, you know, who listen to the podcast really stumble on this idea of like, how do we incorporate the internet and cell phones? And if it's like, if the answer is a cell phone that could just solve the problem, how do we kind of build plots around that? And so I think you, you did it in so many smart ways. You know, obviously people have cell phones at one point, somebody's cell phone dies or some, somebody's cell phone rings to like cut off a conversation. So I think you did it in a really normal and natural way. Did you have to think really hard about how you were going to use the internet and cell phones? No, I didn't. But now I'm no. wondering if I should have thought more about it. I, I just was thinking, you know, of how things happen in real life. I mean, I'm attached to my phone. So it's very, very much an interruption and like a, a plot device in my own life. But no, I didn't think that much about it. 
Oh, I love that. See, maybe I'm just I was, an overthinker. <laughs> I was so busy thinking about stupid things. I really overthought the tense that the book should be in. Mm. Oh my gosh. I went back and forth a million times between past and present tense. I went between first and third person. Like I was really tripping myself up over those things. And then things like the internet, I didn't even give a second thought to. Well, maybe it is become, it is so natural to you, right? Like you're obviously prolific on Instagram. You have the podcast, like you use it in a very natural way. So maybe it's because you use it in a very natural way that it came through naturally in the characters. That's what maybe. I <laughs> So another thing I think that we don't give commercial fiction enough credit for, and another thing that I think you did great in this novel is how each scene has to do so many things, right? Because I think in literary fiction, obviously like, we can explore things and, you know, they could be a bit more meandering. But in commercial fiction, like every scene has a lot of muscle to it, right? It's like we need character development and the plot has to move and so many things. And another thing that I think you did really well, this is just like a, a huge hand clap to, to you for doing such a great job. Oh, I'm going to come so... here every week to get my ego stroked. <laughs> <laughs> you can listen to this episode whenever you want. So Theo, Theo's a bit of a mysterious character of the group and so he is and I think also in, in a book where there is you know a novel can only be so many words right so we do have a kind of a cap on how much we can explore the worlds of each of these characters and so we do again have to learn about a lot of characters in a very kind of jam-packed space and so Theo was so interesting to me because he is a pretty vibrant interesting character he is the son of a billionaire has you know endless access and privilege in that sense also kind of has his own you know issues and that sort of thing that are you know manifest in different ways and so I think Theo learning kind of Theo's love language was really interesting because a lot of times it was through shopping basically so there's this a couple of scenes where Theo and Hannah they're in an art gallery shopping and there's another scene where I think it's Theo and Hannah again, they're shopping for his like mother figures gifts. And so he's a very like giving character. And in these scenes, he, they're also solving a lot of problems. So I'm like, we're learning about Theo. We're solving problems. And, and I always feel like, I, did, I feel like you did a great job of packing everything into each moment. And it's because you pants this novel, that's very curious to me that you were able to like pack so much in if you were a bit of a pantser. So was there a lot of like going back or was this just, did this all come out in the pantsing? Oh my gosh, no. There was a ton of editing. I I want to say the final draft that is being published is maybe the eighth or ninth draft. So there was a ton of rewriting in there and there were a ton of floppy scenes. Like originally in the first version, the scene of them shopping for his mother figure was totally different. He was an enthusiastic baker in one draft and they were he was baking croissants. And so, you know, I I feel like him and Priya, who are the two friends who are not POV characters, were almost the hardest because you're never in their head. So, you know, putting them into situations with the other characters where they got to kind of speak at length so that we kind of started to understand them was really tricky to figure out those moments. I think maybe he likes shopping so much because I like shopping so much. Uh, but I definitely think like there was a motivation there with like, he feels like people like him for his money. And so, you know, he's very splashy and spendy and he feels like that's what he brings to the table. You know, as I was kind of building these characters, two of them, Hannah and Finn, have more traditionally strained familiar relationships. Hannah's parents are both dead and and Finn's parents have kind of excommunicated him after he came out as gay. And then trying to figure out, you know, the other two, which maybe weren't at the same level. And I think, you know, Theo has a lot of abandonment issues and feels like he's not really part of the group. And so, you know, I wanted to show 
kind of how he was expressing love for people and how he was perceiving that he was giving value, even if other people saw it differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I think that's super, super interesting and on point because he had those two characters, as you said, Priya and Theo, they had less moments to shine, but like they really did shine. They were very memorable when they were, and I won't give away some of the moments towards the end, but Priya is very memorable, especially towards the end. <laughs> we, we will not forget Priya. So I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, Bad on Paper, your podcast, yeah. the kind of community that you've built. And I, first of all, obviously, you know, tell our listeners all about Bad on Paper if they don't listen. And then secondly, you know, in terms of the writing and promoting of the Christmas Orphans Club, and as a debut author, how that community has really kind of shown up for you. And, and I'd love for you to speak to that. Yeah. So I've co-hosted the podcast for five and a half years at this point. We started in 2018 and we originally started it as a bi-weekly book club, but then we moved it to monthly because it was a little too much to, to keep up a bi-weekly book club. So we're definitely talking about reading more from the consumer point of view, not really getting as much into craft or, or how the stories got made. Although we do interview authors and sometimes we do veer into those territories just because I'm interested. And my, my co-host Olivia Mentor is also a writer, but we're very much just like huge fans of books and of reading in general. Reading has always been kind of one of my main pastimes from the time I was a kid, all through high school, all through college, all through my adulthood. Like there was never a time where I lost touch with that. And I like to say that every physical book club I've been in has died a slow death by scheduling. I've never been part of a very committed book club. So we made this one online where, you know, I've been able to find other people who want to talk about books with me and I get to make the schedule. So that's been very fun. And as part of our podcast, we talk about in every episode, we do our highs and our lows of the week at the top of the episode. And so through kind of that segment, you know, there was there was no pre-planning or like marketing thought to it. But I've just I've been talking about the process of writing this book since I started it in December of 2020. And so the listeners have truly been along on this journey for going on three years. And at mm -hmm. one point I was so nervous. I was like, oh, I can't talk about it because by the time the book actually comes out. And my book was pretty fast from acquisition to publication. I sold my book last October, so a little under a year until it mm. came out. I was like, people are going to be so sick of hearing about this thing but by the time it actually comes out. Nobody's going to want to buy it anymore, which has absolutely not been the case. I, I feel like I have all of these like internet friends who who have been along on this ride and are so excited and so supportive. And it's been it's been incredible to to start to see the book trickle into their hands through NetGalley or Goodreads giveaways, et cetera, and to hear their feedback and to have them get to read it after hearing about this book for so, so long. Yeah. I feel like I sensed that trepidation, obviously, parasocially through Instagram when you were kind of like, here's the pre-order link. And then I think there was like a Barnes & Noble 25% off pre-order things. And you were like, here's the link, guys. And it like shot up on the charts. And you were just so just like thankful to everybody. It was lovely. Lovely to watch. Well, when the Barnes & Noble presale happened, the book didn't even have a cover. It was like this naked mole rat where it just had like the placeholder text. And I was like, who's going to want to buy my book with no cover? Because I judge books by covers. And so I was so just bowled over that people were rushing to buy it, even though, you know, they didn't they didn't have the, I don't think it had back flap copy yet. I don't think it had, a, it definitely didn't have a cover. So I was like, oh my gosh, just like the blind trust was so heartening. I love that. I love that. I think, you know, sometimes we underestimate those relationships we build parasocially with everybody and that obviously you put so much work into the podcast. Like I know from doing a podcast, it's a lot of work, right? In terms of 
just actually doing the reading and the recording and putting it out there in the world, right? And it's like, you do it because you love to do the thing, right? And obviously that feedback is lovely. So anyway, I was just so glad when everybody showed up and yeah, continue to show up for you. Oh, I feel so warm and fuzzy. I feel like this whole publication process, I'm just like a puddle of mush and I'm not usually an extremely emotional person and I am just happy weeping all the time. As all novelists should, I don't know, all those emotions, they got to go somewhere. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about kind of the next book. I know, obviously, you know, there, there's something in motion here in terms of how, how the process is going for the next one. Oh my gosh, I'm in the throes of it. I'm in the mm-hmm. messy middle part of it. Mm-hmm. I sold a two book deal. So I, uh, I feel like there's a certain benefit and a certain like, I, I feel like there's a plus and a minus to having already sold it. On the one hand, you have that certainty that it's already sold. You have people to help you. You have people in the trenches with you in terms of my agent and my editor. On the flip side, I feel so much pressure. Everyone talks about, you know, sophomore book syndrome or kind of the mental gymnastics of it. And I'm feeling that really hard right now. So I, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of it. It I don't know how it's going. It's a thing that exists. (laughs) It's been interesting. I, I definitely have been thinking about and reevaluating how much I want to share about the process on the internet. With the first one, I was just so giddy. I was like, I want to share everything. And now I'm like, oh, like this feels hard and like it's not going well. And will people not want to buy the book if they then know that it was such a hard process? Or I don't know. So I'm like trying to figure out what my boundaries are because I feel like when I wrote the first book, I was writing it so much as a lark that I didn't really consider anything. I was like, I'm just so excited to tell you about this thing I'm doing. And now I'm like, oh, how much do I want to tell you? This is a career now. Yes, I know. There's I know. So, many, so many things um, that kind of go into to bringing the package together. And then speaking of the package, so um, the cover, it's just super adorable. I'm looking at it right now. There's, you know, it's in big, bold letters. We have our Christmas tree and our four friends, you know, sitting, looking out over the skating rink. Did you see a lot of versions of the cover? Was this kind of a hit from the beginning? How did that cover process go for you? There was a round of covers before this. And I think, you know, we all were kind of aligned on what we wanted, where we wanted it to feel Christmassy, but I didn't want it to feel red and green. I I kind of want to think about this book as a Christmas book for people who maybe haven't read a Christmas book before. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it has that saccharine quality that a Hallmark movie does. And so I didn't want it to be off-putting to people who aren't seasonal readers. And uh, so the cover's pink. It's not red. I think there was like a yellow version at some point. Like there were there were definitely other colors involved, but it was never red and green. And one of the things in the first cover that all the characters were facing forward and in the the final cover, they're, they're facing away. So you can kind of see them in profile, but it's not necessarily straight on. I was, again, I was really worried about it looking too much like a romance cover and, you know, people having these expectations, you know, with cartoon people on it, like, is this going to be a Tessa Bailey book? And it's so different than that. So, you know, wanting to, wanting it to feel like it was hitting cover trends, but not necessarily missetting expectations. And I think turning them away from the viewer really gave it kind of a different vibe. And we knew it, we wanted it to be Christmassy that you could tell it has Christmas in the title. It has this big Christmas tree on it, but hopefully that it felt like a little bit different. I really love where we ended up. Yeah, no, I totally love it. And I think one of the things because I've I have a client who's written a Christmas ebook. And so obviously it comes out in that season. But then we also think about 
you know, when is it going to go on sale and how long is it going to mm-hmm. live for and like promoting it again the next year. So there's a lot of like seasonality to lean into, but then also you want to be able to promote it across the whole season, which yours comes out in September. So it's obviously wonderful. As I said to, I think it's a very cozy read. Like I enjoyed reading it in the summer. Like I don't think there is a season to it, but obviously the hook is the Christmas and you know, the friendship. So yeah, I think, I think it's a wonderful package. Um, and I think it's super funny. I wanted to read one of my favorite lines because I was like just underlining everything that I thought was funny because I do think funny is very hard. So I want to I want to read to the to the listeners what I think is very funny. So at the end, it says, I never expected to be having one of the most important conversations of my life with a Dunkin' iced coffee in my hand. This must be what it feels like to be Ben Affleck. And I just died. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> I feel like this is the line of the book that's gotten pulled out the most so far. (laughs) It's one of my favorite lines. I don't mind at all, but it's funny that people are gravitating towards that. I love it. Yeah, I I like funny writing. Do you read any Vari McFarlane? She's a UK author. It's spelled M-H-A-I-R-I, but it's pronounced Vari, so it's a little confusing. Okay. But she is... And I know Emily Henry is a fan of hers as well. I think Vari is one of the most like laugh out loud, funny on the page authors. And I've been such a huge fan of her books for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And I think Emily Henry does laugh out loud really well too. You know, I I came from, before I wrote a book, I did four fiction podcasts, which are kind of like audio radio plays almost, like a, a movie without visuals. So they're very like dialogue based, no narration. There's individual actors to play each of the characters. And we were very much going for laughs there. And so I think it was a good training ground of like how to write jokes. But I think, you know, that's just kind of how me and my friends are too. I feel like when you have a group of friends, like you have in jokes and you have the way that you talk to these people, that's maybe different than you talk to like a romantic partner where there are more serious aspects. It's not just like all jokes. So I really did want it to be funny. And some of that came really naturally. And some of it, I like knocked my head against a wall being like, this joke is dumb. How do I, how do I punch this up? Yeah. I was going to say, who can, who can come in for the punch up? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's me. Yeah. I have to come it's back me. in for the punch up. <laughs> but when you keep doing drafts and drafts, you'll come up with like one funny line here and there and you kind of sprinkle them through. And so, you know, I feel like if you go for too many laughs, it kind of dilutes the value of, of yeah. the joke to begin with. So it's like finding the the right tension there yeah and I think in a lot of times your humor breaks tension because there's also the the there's a scene where they rent a car because something happens and like the car is funny for this situation right so it's like that situational humor that you do that's funny too and there's another line that I thought was like much more emotional didn't not you know capital f funny but it was the no one can hurt you like the people you love the most because they know your squishiest parts like oh it's so true (laughs) It's so true. That's why fighting with friends is the worst. They know it all. So, yeah. Yes. Well, I'm just, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy the reception has been excellent because it's a really excellent book. So I hope you go into publication with so much confidence and I hope it has an incredible life and I hope all the listeners buy it because I really think you did an incredible job. Oh, thank you so much, Carly. That means so, so much coming from you because I know that you have a a high bar. I listen to (laughs) your critiques. I'm like, oh my gosh, what would Carly say about my book? So this was much, much more fun and positive than I feared in my head. Not that I thought you were going to be mean to me. Yes. Well, no, I think it's great. And I'm looking forward to your next book as well. So we wish you all the best with this incredible launch. Oh, thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. 
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.